0: No kids this morning. No kids. I lied. Shouldn't lie in church, but I just did. I'm sorry. The kids get to join us this morning. So, since I've been a pastor, um, I realized I haven't preached a sermon in almost like a month not quite, almost a month, about four weeks. We had stuff going on, and I was out last week. Um, thank you, James Yandel, for preaching a great sermon. I heard great things about it. Um, and they say, some preachers say that whenever you take a month off or something like that, that you come back and you preach better because you're rested. Others say it's tough to get back in the groove. So afterwards, let me know how, what you think it is for me, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Um, but if you have your Bibles, turn with to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Our text this morning is one verse. But a verse that I think is very important and very applicable for us today. Matthew chapter 5. I'm not going to have you stand this morning because I'm just going to read a single verse. We should have it up on the screen. Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. It'll be real quick. Matthew 5. Talking about Jesus, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. May God bless the reading of this word this morning. Have you ever had one of those moments where... um, a phrase just like hits you or a word just hits you. And it was almost as if like you unknowingly, your mind and your heart were thirsty and just so desiring of something. And then when you experienced it, you realized how desperate you had been for that word or for that idea or for that concept. Uh, That happened to me about a couple months ago when we were on a mission trip to Southeast Asia. We went on a mission trip as a church. Um, taking the gospel to to the nations, and when we were there, I remember we had this moment where uh, every morning we would begin our day by um, gathering in a hotel room together, and somebody would share a devotional and somebody would pray and In that particular morning, um, before we were going to go out, it was my wife 's opportunity to pray, and she was praying, and obviously we 're on a mission trip, and so it 's kind of like a global focus, and that whole idea is on our mind. And she prayed something in her prayer that stuck with me, because before we went on this trip, I just felt the Lord leading us to go through the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm going to explain what that is this morning. But I, I, I felt God leading us to go through this, through, through this speech that Jesus gave that forever changed the world. Uh, but I wasn't sure exactly, you know, what all that meant specifically for our church here today. And so we're in this room, and, and we're praying, and she says this phrase that I'll never forget. She says... And Lord, we know that, that your kingdom is without borders. And whenever she said that, there was something in my heart that just like leaped as if like that, was like that was it, like that was the concept I was looking for to understand what I think God is doing in this world today and what God is doing in our church today is this idea that God's kingdom is without borders, you see when you think about it everything belongs to God because God created everything didn't he I think it's funny how we we as humans we love borders we like dividing things up we we draw a line and we say well we're in and we say well they're out we're always trying to divide, and we're always trying to separate, and, and, and I think it's, I think God thinks it's really cute how we try to create countries, you know, like we say, okay, well, well, here's America, and we draw this border, and well, there's Canada, and that's not America, that's Canada, right, and this is America, and this is Mexico, and, and this is Ch- China, and then Australia is really random, you know, and, and here's, here's Europe, and it's a lot of countries in a kind of jumbled together, and we create all these borders, and we think that they're so official, and they're so meaningful, and and, 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 and I think God looks down and he's just like, I think that's really cute. Oh, that's America. <laughs> and of all the people who love borders, there is no one who loves borders more than who? Guess. Texas. Texas loves borders more than anything. Because we're Texas and everybody else is not Texas, okay? And that makes us really proud, And we create these borders, and we make all these official things that we think are are so legitimate. We have, like, we have our own flag, you know, like it looks a certain way. And I, I love the Texas flag. I'm not trying to make light of it. I think it's a good thing. But, like, this is the flag that represents the borders of which we have set in our country. Here in Texas, we have our own state dish. It's called chili. We have an official state food, and it's chili. We have a state vehicle. Did you know this? It's the chuck wagon. The chuck wagon is the Texas state vehicle. What's the state flower? Blue bonnet. What's the state bread? No, blue bonnet. The, affi- the official Texas state bread is, I'm going to say this wrong, pan de campo, which means cowboy bread, of course. We have our own state folk dance. Square dance, yes. See, I'm not making this up. Texas was the first state to decide that it needed, and I'm not making this up, a state molecule. Did you know we have an official state molecule? It's called buckyball. I don't know what that is, but that's, I mean, that's our official state molecule. Because somebody thought that that was so important, you know, that we have our own state molecule within our borders. Our official state sport is the rodeo. That makes sense. We have an official state small mammal, which is the nine-banded armadillo, and we have a state large mammal, okay, because you need a large and small. We have a state large mammal, which is, people get this wrong all the time. It's not the longhorn. It's the, it's officially called the Texas longhorn. The Texas longhorn is the official large mammal. And then this is my, this is my favorite one. We have an official state pastry called the strudel. But then we have an official state pastry number two, okay, because one wasn't enough. We needed another one, somebody said, and so our official state pastry number two is the sopapilla, which I would imagine is used to show our beautiful blend of uh, American and Mexican culture here in Texas, affectionately referred to as Tex-Mex. <laughs> and I think God looks down and he's like, that's, that's just adorable, right? That's so precious. And when God looks at the world, I don't think he sees much difference in America versus, say, China or Switzerland or Mars, or the Milky Way, or some planet. And we laugh about that, and we think, well, that's really funny. But what about your life? Are there borders in your life? You see, we like borders, and we don't just like them in the world, we like them in our life. And and what I mean by that is, does God control every province and every state and every country in your soul Or do we kind of divide up authority? They say the main reason why humanity creates borders is to divide up the authority so that more people can be in charge. As humans in our fallen state, I think we love being in charge of stuff. I think that's kind of what we're really into, unfortunately. But what about our lives? Does the kingdom of God have borders in your life? Does Does the kingdom of God reign over your money? Is God in charge of the province of your life called money? Or what about your schedule or your time, your life? Is is God the king over your home? Is he the king over your life when the doors are closed? Or do we kind of divide up God's jurisdiction without realizing that really, in all reality, in this world and in our lives, the kingdom of God is without borders? This is a radical concept, and, and the main idea that this morning and for the next five months as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is that the kingdom of God has no borders in this world and in my life, and specifically I put in my life because I want this to become very personal for you like it's become for me. Does the kingdom of God reign over my entire life, or are there there borders and dividing lines? And in order to see this more clearly, we are about to enter into the greatest speech ever given to humanity. The most impactful speech given by the most impactful human, Jesus, that ever lived. What we're going to read in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the longest recorded speech that we have of Jesus today. If you were to come to the world and didn't know anything, or to, to earth, and and you wanted to hear the longest speech by the most influential person in the world, you would be directed to the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're going to read today. And Jesus preaches on everything. He preaches on loving your neighbor, loving your enemy. He preaches on not judging and not being anxious. He preaches on anger and divorce. He, he preaches on fasting the Old Testament and suffering, I believe, ultimately to show that this man who was coming named Jesus was king over everything. And it's very interesting. In Matthew's gospel, that the gospel of Matthew was the primary gospel written to the Jews. Matthew was a disciple. He was also a Jew. And they say that Matthew most likely divided up the main speeches and discourses of Jesus into five specific parts Because it paralleled the Old Testament Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible were the original Bible of the Jews back in the Old Testament. And they believe when you compare every little speech to to every part of of the Old Testament Pentateuch, that what you see is they, they relate. And so what the Sermon on the Mount would have related to in the Old Testament Bible was Genesis. And so what they think Matthew was doing was this is kind of the Genesis account of the New Testament when Jesus begins giving the Sermon on the Mount. He begins laying out what this this new kingdom is going to look like. And it's so different from the broken world that we live in. He begins laying out what this creation looks like and how people interact with each other. And what the world looks like when Jesus is king. So he says... At the beginning, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. I want to key in on that first phrase, seeing the crowds. Jesus was popular. When you heal people, when you preach amazing messages, people and crowds tend to form, don't they? And so far in the narrative of Matthew, we're going to begin in chapter five. But so far, what's happened is that Jesus was born. We just celebrated that at Christmas. And so Christ is born. He grows up, God sends John the Baptist to prepare the way, Jesus comes, he's baptized by John the Baptist to begin his ministry, he calls his first disciples to follow him and then he begins loving the world powerfully, he's healing people, he's preaching phenomenal messages that sound so unlike the world that we live in, he's doing all these kind of different things and so these, these crowds begin to form around Jesus and the question is, why were there crowds? What was it that these people were sensing in Jesus that they did not sense anywhere else? And and what I think they were sensing, even if they didn't realize it, was that Jesus was God. The most important thing before we begin the Sermon on the Mount the next five months is to know this one thing, that Jesus is God. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. When you read the words of Christ in the New Testament, God is speaking. It is from God's mouth to your ear. The most important thing of any speech is number one, the content, and number two, the person speaking the content. If I claim to be an atheist and I'm up here teaching you about the Bible and the truth of Jesus, then that doesn't make any sense, does it? And so these crowds are beginning to form ultimately because Jesus is God. The most important thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is truly God. Or another way to put it is that there are no borders between God and Jesus. They're sensing a man who is without sin. They're, they're, they're sensing a man who, he's not selfish, he's just all about the work of God. Even, even the person that you admire the most, maybe it's a, 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 a spiritual leader in the faith or whatever, even that person, you know that they sin and they have issues. You know that even in my life, I have borders that I struggle with between my relationship with God. But what they were encountering was God in the full. And White Oak, when you read Matthew chapter 5 through 7, what you're encountering is, is God in the full. You're not just encountering morality and good ideas. You're encountering the Holy Spirit. When those thoughts that you read, when it talks about loving your enemy, such a radical concept in the first century Jewish world. In that day, it was all about power and dominance. The biggest army won, okay? The, the, the biggest countries were the, had the biggest armies. And if somebody did something wrong, they were often viewed as just killed. They would just be killed for it. And then Jesus brings this radical idea of, of, of loving your enemies. And so the crowds are, are forming and they're astonished by everything that he's saying. And then he says in John ten thirty, he says, I and the Father are one. What he says is when you see me, you see God. And I'll keep hammering this point. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're seeing God in flesh coming to draw us near him. We are given this message, we're given this sermon that we're going to study for the next few months, that we would read it and thus radiate God's glory. I had an opportunity um, over the break to get a couple of days um, in a really beautiful place uh, called Wimberley, Texas. Um, I'll be honest, I did not know that there were places this beautiful in the great state of Texas. Um, when I think of beautiful places, I think of like California, Colorado, Florida, you know, places like that. And I got to go to the hill country in between kind of San Antonio and Austin and Wimberley, Texas. And Halsey and I spent two days in the most enchanting and charming town you could ever imagine, okay? I don't know if y'all watch the Hallmark channel, but we felt like we were like in a Hallmark movie the entire time. And we were there, and uh, we were kind of tired one day from kind of doing some stuff we had done. And uh, we began walking in the beautiful scenery, and literally in this town, there's just creeks everywhere. Like there's just like a random beautiful stream in the right behind the restaurant we were eating. You know, this beautiful creek, and and the water is rushing over the rocks, and it's got that sound, you know, that you can you can find on the internet, but this is real, you know. And, and so we're listening to this beauty, and, and it's like, it's winter in Texas, which means it's like autumn, and so the trees look like they're autumn, and it's like about 45 degrees, and we're walking down this creek, and it was one of those moments where we just felt compelled to stop everything we're doing, and we laid down like next to the creek in this beautiful soft field of grass, looking up at the trees, not a cloud in the sky, and it's like for a moment we thought we were kind of in heaven. I have a picture of it, but I'm not sure how good it'll, yeah, of course, you can't see it too much. I posted it online on my Instagram. But in real resolution, it looks really good. And as I was laying down there, I remember thinking to myself, um, nature does a much better job of radiating God's glory than humanity does. And the same God that created the Rocky Mountains and Wimberley, Texas, created you and me. And I wonder why when people look at us they're not taken with the same sense of awe as when you see the beauty of nature. Did not God create us to be above that Doesn't God care more about us than he does the trees and the birds? Isn't that what what Christ said? And yet somehow they seem to do a better job at radiating God's glory. Because when you're looking at nature, it's almost like there's not as many borders between nature and God because nature just kind of lets God do with it what God created it to do. And yet humanity, God has created us to, to radiate his glory and yet we just create these borders and we darken ourselves and we darken ourselves. And what the crowds experienced whenever they saw Jesus was the fullness of God. It was him and there was nothing else in the way and the kingdom of God in our lives should be the same way. We're, it, we're, we're just the work of his hands. There, there's nothing else. There's nothing of us. There's nothing that we want to do. We're not in control. We just submit to God and he radiates his glory through us. And he loves the world through us. And, he, and he, he, he builds up the people around him through us. And we are just radiating his glory. Yet we create these borders. And then we shut out the light. And so the, the crowds knew that this was God that they were experiencing. But when they knew there was something different about this man, it says at the end of uh, chapter 5, verse 1, his disciples came to him. This is the last phrase I want to focus on. Once again, we, we just, we blow over this passage, right? We're, we're trying to get to the Beatitudes, right? Which we'll look at next week. Because that's the famous thing. And yet we just miss the reality that they were so compelled by this God that it says that they came to him. In the New Testament, the disciples, they drew close to Jesus. They came close to him. And what's going to happen is the next few months, the Sermon on the Mount will be preached in this church. And the question is, will you come close to it? Or will you keep it at a distance? Will you you draw close to the words of Jesus? Will you implement them in your life? Will you try to change everything about you? Or will you just kind of keep it as as a compelling narrative in the Bible? You see, Jesus was ultimately calling his disciples to come close to God. Holiness is simply the reality of being close to God. Holiness isn't morality. Holiness is about being close to Him. It's about being like Him that you can be close to Him the way that we were designed to do. Holiness is ultimately supposed to make you in the image of Jesus. It's supposed to make you close to Him, in relationship with Him. And so when we go through the Sermon on the Mount and when we read these things, I'm not asking you to follow a bunch of morality. What I'm really asking you at the very core is to be close to God. And as I mentioned earlier, I, I honestly believe, and this is kind of a, a radical, all-encompassing statement, but I believe every human issue comes down to a lack of closeness to God. God. And when you begin thinking about this, it really makes sense. Why am I anxious? Well, I I guess I'm not trusting God. Why did I sin? Well, because my life wasn't close to the life He had planned for me. I didn't love my enemy the way that He said. I, I decided to hold a grudge. You know, New Year's resolutions come, it's 2015, and it's time to eat better and to get in shape, and of course those are, those are my two things, and I'm, I'm proud of that. Uh, I just want to be honest and say I'm not the guy that bashes New Year's resolutions. I've noticed that's kind of become a really popular thing, to make fun of New Year's resolutions and to say that they're bad for you, but you know, I honestly think they're good. But I think what can be wrong with New Year's resolutions is we don't really address the problem. And so what I'm asking myself right now is not just how am I going to eat better, I ask myself why don't I eat good? Like, what, what, is the, what is the root cause of why I, I do the things that I do? We make all these resolutions, and, and yet we ignore the, the problem, which is ultimately that we're not close enough to God, we're not aligned with Him, we're not walking with Him. We're, we're cleaning up the messes, but we're not addressing the heart of the matter. Uh, as I mentioned, I hope your New Year started better than mine Um, I posted this online, so some of you saw this. Um, My new year, January 1, 2015, began with my wife waking me up very early. Um, I was sick, by the way. I've been sick for a while now, and so I was really sick. January 1st was probably the worst day of it. I woke up sick. My wife woke me up early (laughs) to tell me that a pipe had busted in our kitchen sink. And so I, I, I kind of thought maybe she's joking or whatever but um, I go into the kitchen to find that a pipe under our sink has busted and water is spewing everywhere, okay? And it's like one of those kind of panic feelings because you're not quite sure what to do. And it's busted under the sink and, you know, our our cabinets aren't divided off. And so, like, literally there's water not only spewing out onto, like, the kitchen floor, but, like, under all of our cabinets, water is spewing everywhere. Where you pull out the the drawer for the silverware, there was, like, this much water okay, I mean it was horrific, and I woke up and I was kind of, kind of, you know, frazzled because I, I was already sick, I wasn't feeling well, and now there's water spewing everywhere, right, you know, it's like slitter bomb, but it's like in my kitchen, you know, so it's not good, right, and so I'm sort of like, like, what do I do, you know, and I'm not a handyman, and I I always say I'm not a handyman, I'm not that kind of guy, and so I'm kind of panicking, right. And my, my first inclination is, well, I got to clean it up because there's literally water that's like all over my floor. It's getting under my counters. It's going to go in the living room. I'm going to have water damage. I've got to address this. My first thing is like, I, I got to fix it. But then my logic kicks in. And I'm like, well, if I clean up all the water and I don't fix the leak or the problem, then I'm not going to do much. So I, I get on Google like everybody does. And I'm like, how would you find the water shutoff valve to your house? I've been a homeowner for a year. I don't even know where the water shutoff for my house is, right? And so I call some plumber, um, and he's, he's walking me through it. He tells me it's going to be 250 to just walk in my front door, right, just to come out. So I said, never mind, just t- can you just tell me where the, the, the shutoff valve is? He told me that. I went outside, I did it, I felt really good, and then I began cleaning up the mess, and literally we had to wash every single dish that we had in our entire house, because the water that came out wasn't very clean. And I'll tell you what, I deal with it all the time, and, and, and people always want to try and fix all the, the messes of their life, and, and they want to, you know, get their job better, or we, we create this thing on an island, and, and my whole thing is always, if, if a person is not really wanting to draw closer to God, they will just spend their whole life cleaning up all the different messes that it causes. And, and they will never address The source. Maybe you've tried a few New Year's resolutions and they didn't work, and you're wondering why. Maybe it's because, like Proverbs said, in Proverbs, I think it's chapter uh, 4, that out of your heart springs life. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. There's this concept in the Bible, from whatever your heart is, that's what everything else in your life will be. Your, your relationships, your marriage, your children, your finances, everything you do, your joy, everything comes from where your heart is with God. Like if you can get that one thing down, if you can be close to God, if you can dwell with him and if you can trust him, if you can enter to the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, if you can really do that, then maybe all these random things don't keep happening in your life and you don't spend your entire life cleaning up the messes. And that's what this new journey is all about. It's all about realizing that Jesus is truly God. That it is in him we find forgiveness of sin. It is in him we find righteousness. It is in him we find love and hope and peace. And that when we realize that this is truly God, when we realize that this sermon that he delivers is is truly the word of God to us, that we then, like the disciples, we draw near to him and we sit at the feet of Jesus while he's on the mount and we just say, whatever you say, Jesus, that's what we're gonna do. You see, holiness is ultimately about closeness. And we're gonna close today um, with the Lord's Supper. And uh, one of the things the Lord laid on my heart for the next few months is... um, I'm going to call our church to, um, from, from now until May, at the end of every service, um, as a matter of response, I'm going to invite us to come forward and take the Lord's Supper. And the reason why is because of all the things that we do in church, I don't think there's anything that signifies being close to God than walking up to the table and actually consuming the elements. Like I said earlier, I think the root of all of our problems is that we're not close to God, is that we, we hear a message and we kind of nod our head and we agree with it, yet there's no response. And so the way that we'll close every gathering as we come together, as we hear this radical message to obey Jesus and to, to live in his kingdom, we will close by singing songs together and every single Sunday for the next few months, we will walk to the front and we will take communion together as a church. But as we do this, it's not just a ritual. It's not just something we do out of a religious mindset. We do it because we truly know in reality that God loves us and that he died for us. And that in his death, as we come to communion, what we are doing ultimately is we are coming close. God is inviting us into a relationship at the table. He is, he is offering us this sermon. He's offering us this word. He's offering us this kingdom. And our, our part in responding to it is coming to the table and partaking of his death. And not just remembering that he died for us, but in our hearts saying, I am aligning with you. I am coming close to Christ. On this table with the, with, with the cracker and the juice, it is Christ's body that is offered for you. It's his body that is offered for you so that he would say, I love you so much that I'm giving my life for you. I'm loving you so much. I I, I just want you to obey me. I wanna bring you true life. I'm gonna offer my body for you. And that when we come forward, we say we realize what you have done here and we confess that your kingdom is without borders in our life. The table is very meaningful. Meaningful. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to bless the, the table. Uh, when I pray, I'm going to ask the, the deacons to come forward to prepare the table. And, uh, and we're going to do it in more of a sense of response. And so what we're going to do is you're going to come and um, you're going to, whenever you get the juice, if you want to take it right there, you can, if you want to go back to your seat. Um, but we're just going to sing a couple songs and we're going to ask that you come forward. Um, and I'm not going to tell you when to take it. Um, for the next few months, we're going to try something a little bit different. I want this to be between you and God personally. I want you to pray, to examine your heart, to to see maybe if there's places and borders that you've drawn that God is asking you to tear down in this season of your life. Maybe there's a sin that you're ready to to, to give up. Maybe maybe you wanna wave the the white flag and say, okay, God, I, I get it, you're really Lord. I need to follow you. I need to give you my life. What I'm doing isn't working. And the table is the opportunity to do that. So I'll pray for us, and then whenever I um, close the prayer and we sing a song, feel free to come forward, um, and then take it on your own, whenever you feel led, and then I will sing a couple songs, and then I'll dismiss us and we'll be done. So I love you guys, let's pray. Jesus, you told us that anybody who comes to you will find life. You promised us that those who would come after you, that those who seek you would find you, Jesus. And so God, I pray that as we enter to a time where we're taking of the Lord's Supper, as Christians and fellow believers come to the table, I pray, Father, that if there's a place in us that is dead in which there is no life, I pray you would use this moment this Lord's Supper, to bring us life. God, I pray that the Lord's Supper would remind us of that moment when we first came to you. And God, I just ask that you would restore in us the joy of your salvation. God, I pray you would search our hearts this morning as we prepare to take of your table. I pray that as we respond in walking forward and consuming the elements, God, that it would be like it was the first time we've ever done it. God, do away with the, with the ritual and bind this act to our hearts, Father. God, we confess as we take these elements that, that your kingdom is without borders, that you get all of us, God. And I pray if there's anyone who's been holding something back or, or something's just kind of been not very close to God, I pray in this moment you would draw us so near to you, God, that we would hear your voice, that we'd see your face, and that you would mold our lives to look just like Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.